Well, I'm excited to be launching a new series today called Love Does. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the idea of love and the kinds of things that love does. Because while love is many things to many people, it's primarily an action word. It's a verb. Now, we need to pause for just a moment and make sure that we're crystal clear about something. Okay? The series title is called Love Does, not Love Does. All right, so for all you deer hunters out there, this is not a series about rifles and camouflage and deer stands. It's not love does, it's love does. All right, we good? And so our vision as a church is to be known, belong, and be loved. And we talk every week about being the tangible hands and feet of Jesus in our homes, in our neighborhoods, our community, and beyond. And today, we're gonna examine a particular activity of love, which is serve. And I'm going to start by sharing a few stories. In Luke 9, it says, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to him, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest, verses 46 to 48. And then in Luke 22, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Verses 24 through 27. And then in Mark 9, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who is the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Verses 33 through 35. You know, the Apostle Paul once said, Serve one another humbly in love. It's an odd thing. It's easy for me to study servanthood and teach about serving and to read about serving and to admire serving and to champion serving. I go to church, and I'm deeply moved about what Jesus had to say about serving. So I'm highly in favor of serving. I am pro-serving. But when the rubber hits the road, I can be reluctant to jump into action. I think serving was a challenging topic, which is why Jesus was constantly talking about it from the beginning of his ministry all the way to the end. So we're going to look at a few of his teachings and then look together at how you and I can practice serving together later this month. Actually, one of Jesus' strangest and least popular parables is about this very topic. Jesus said to his disciples this, Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? 
So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. It's an odd story. You know, Jesus is supposed to be Mr. Humility, Mr. Servanthood. And he tells this story to his disciples where their master doesn't even even bother to say thank you to the servant. Actually, it's precisely because of his disciples' resistance to serving that Jesus tells them this story in this way. It's just brilliant. They all like to consider themselves as being number one. So he definitely begins by appealing to that mindset. He invites them to identify with the master. He says, suppose one of you has a servant. So now they get to imagine themselves as being the top dog, the head honcho. And then in the context of how work took place in that day, he describes dealing with somebody who has an unwilling spirit. In our day, it would be something like this. If you had a spouse, you both got home from work at the same time. The kids were sick. The toilet was clogged. The house is a mess. If your spouse were to hang up their clothes and say, hey, honey, look what I did. I hung up my clothes all by myself. I put my socks in the hamper. I did all these things without being told. Take care of all that other stuff and fix me a steak to celebrate. How many of you would put up with a spouse like that? It's a good thing that Amber's not in the room. Or if you ran a business and one of your employees came in and said, hey, I'm at my desk on time. I successfully executed my commute. My shoes match. My computer's turned on. I deserve a raise. It's time for a break. Now you, my so-called boss, come do my job for me while I do nothing and get paid for it. Jesus, in the context of his day, is painting a scene of a vastly underperforming, entitled employee. And then he asked the disciples, if you were in charge, would you put up with that? And all the disciples are saying, no way, I'd never put up with that. That guy would have to learn to do his job with a good attitude. And then Jesus completely reverses the perspective and says to his disciples, so you also when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. In other words, disciples of mine, you're not the master. God is the master. You are the servant. Now that line, unworthy servants, doesn't mean they have a self-esteem problem. And that's polite language in the ancient Middle East that means we will not regard ourselves as entitled or arrogant or puffed up. Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to be great servants. And a great servant does not go around saying, look at me, applaud me, reward me. In fact, this parable actually points to one of the most important signs of growth in servanthood and in the spiritual life in general. When you first obey God, for instance, if you first serve, it'll seem to you that you have done something special, something heroic. Honey, I emptied the dishwasher. Record this and post it on Instagram. Call my mom. She'll be so thrilled. When people asked Mother Teresa why she served, she said she did it for the joy. It no longer looked to her like she was doing something heroic. She did it for the joy. Dallas Willard used to say, the marker of spiritual maturity are the thoughts that no longer occur to you. 
For instance, if somebody wrestles with alcohol, their first day of sobriety will seem heroic for them. They'll think all throughout the day how hard and unusual it is that they've stayed sober. And after 20 years of sobriety, they don't think about it nearly as much. They are free to think other, more interesting thoughts. Now sobriety looks just like moral sanity for which they are grateful. Spiritual maturity is like that. Love serves. Love looks for chances to serve. Where there's a serving problem, there will be a love problem. And Jesus teaches this all the time. And we want to actually practice serving this month. One of the most unforgettable episodes involves a time when Jesus was invited to dinner uh, to the home of a religious leader named Simon. And this is from Luke chapter 7. But first, I'm going to set a little context for you. As a visiting rabbi, Jesus would have been expected to be the guest of honor. And certain small acts of servanthood and hospitality would have been customarily done. Part of the role that servanthood always plays in a culture is welcoming people. And in Jesus' day, the customary greeting would have been a kiss on the cheek. If the guest of honor is a person of equal social rank, you would kiss them on the cheek. If a child were greeting a parent or a student greeting a rabbi, you would kiss their hand as a gesture of respect. To neglect this was the equivalent of ignoring somebody coming into your home in our day. To have them come into your home without even acknowledging their presence or shaking their hand. Maybe even giving them a hug or a holy butt slap. Which I'm a big fan of. Now the washing of feet was a mandatory act before a meal. If you wanted to honor a high status guest, you would wash their feet yourself. If not, you may have your servant do it or may even just give the guest the water to wash their own feet. But this would have been somewhat offensive. You may also give them olive oil for anointing their head and their skin because they lived in desert dryness. Amazingly, in the story, Simon does not serve Jesus in any way. There is no greeting, no kiss, no washing of feet, no anointing of skin. You have to understand, these are not subtle omissions easily missed. This was a deliberate slap in the face of Jesus. And the tension in the room at this party would have been so thick, you could cut it with a knife. And banquets in those days were kind of public affairs. And they would happen in the courtyard of the well-to-do, and anybody could just walk up and watch and listen. And there was a woman who decided to show up. But she's unexpected. She's a sinner. In fact, she was a prostitute. Everybody in the village knew this. And something was going on inside this woman. It's likely she heard Jesus teaching earlier that day. And something about this Jesus touched something very deep inside her heart. And she's probably thinking, how in the world did I get here? You know, nobody grows up thinking they'll be a prostitute. You know, that no young girl has that for her life goal. Once she had been somebody's little baby, the object of a mother's hopes and dreams. And then things turned out all wrong. Maybe her husband had rejected her. And this was the only way she could survive. 
Maybe it was just the easiest way she was able to get money. But when she hears Jesus teach, it comes to her. Right there in her life, she is loved by God. God still thinks of her and longs for her as if she were his daughter. It's not too late, not even for her. She hears that Jesus is at this house for dinner. Of course, you understand that she would have not been invited to this dinner in a million years. She knows that. But she summons all of the courage and comes to this courtyard where the dinner is happening. She's trembling with fear. And she's overcome by love. And then she watches this scene and she sees how Jesus is treated by Simon, ignored and insulted. And she can't stand it. And her love and devotion and anger all well up to the surface. What could she do? Now, of course, she can't be the one to give Jesus a kiss of greeting. That would be incredibly presumptuous. You can imagine how the people around the table would interpret that. And then she has this idea. She could kiss his feet. Now, to wash somebody's feet was an act of servanthood. But to kiss somebody's feet in that culture was an act of complete humility. Imagine the drama now. Jesus is reclining at the table, leaning on an elbow, and his feet are facing away from the table. And this woman walks toward him. And everybody is watching. Everybody knows who she is. She kneels down to kiss his feet. She looks at Jesus. And instead of judgment or ridicule or embarrassment, there is only love. She has not seen that look in a man's eyes in a long time. Maybe never. And here, she sees it in the eyes of the best man she's ever known who loves her, not as an object, but as a daughter, like a friend, like a sister, who loves her, not in the shadows, but in the light. Tears come to this woman, a few at first, and then more. And before she can do anything, they're pouring down her face. Tears of sadness for what she's done. Tears of gratitude because Jesus offers forgiveness. Tears of joy because Jesus has filled her with this strange hope for her life. Jesus' feet, unwashed by Simon, are wet from this woman's tears. And then she wonders, how can I dry them? There's no use asking for a towel. Simon would never give her one. So on impulse, she lets down her hair. Now this is another shocking breach of etiquette in that day. Amber talked a little bit about this last week. A woman always wore her hair up in public. She never allowed it to hang loose in mixed company. It was actually considered too provocative for men to be able to handle. That's why a woman's hair would always be up. If a married woman let her hair down in front of any other man other than her husband, it was actually grounds for divorce in that day. 
Everybody knew her profession. This is a woman who had let her hair down many, many times with many, many men. But now she was doing it one final time. And this time she was getting it right. With her hair, she wipes Jesus' feet. She had an alabaster jar of ointment. Most likely this refers to a flask worn around the neck as kind of a perfume for the woman. And again, because of her profession, the flask was quite important. But now she empties it. She won't need it anymore. You see, she's pouring out her life. She can't anoint his head. She's a sinful woman. He's a holy man. That would be disrespectful. So she pours it over his feet. And then she kisses his feet over and over. Love serves. Simon is watching, and this is not turning out at all the way he planned. He says to himself, Jesus must not be it after all. If Jesus was even a prophet, he would know who this woman is. If Jesus was even a prophet, he wouldn't let her touch him with a 10-foot pole. And so Jesus tells a little story. He says, Simon, two people owed money to a lender. One owed a small amount. The other owed a huge fortune. Neither had the money to pay him back, and he forgave them both. Who do you suppose loved him the most? Simon said, I suppose the one who was forgiven the biggest debt. And Jesus affirmed, yeah, it's the one who was, who's forgiven most, who loves the most. And then comes one of the greatest conversations in Scripture. Picture this in your mind. The text says, Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon. Now picture this. Up until now, the conversation had been between Jesus and Simon. Now Jesus keeps speaking to Simon, but his eyes are locked on the woman. And her eyes are locked on Jesus. Imagine her just beaming under Jesus' gaze. Her heart is pounding, filled with uncertainty and unspeakable love. Everybody now with Jesus turns to look at her. She was going to serve Jesus, and now he is serving her. Jesus is just that way. And he says, and he asks Simon, do you see this woman? Simon didn't. He saw an example of immorality or an object of contempt. He didn't see what Jesus saw at all. And then Jesus says to Simon, you gave me no water. Jesus is being courteous here. He doesn't even say, Simon, you should have washed his feet, you know, uh, but at least he should have given him water. She bathed my feet with tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. She has not stopped kissing my feet. Somebody who considered himself Jesus' equal would have at least kissed his cheek. A disciple would have kissed his hand. She has not stopped kissing my feet. And I can picture Jesus saying to the woman, okay, you can stop now. Simon, you didn't anoint my head with common olive oil. She didn't anoint my head, but my feet. She didn't use something cheap. She poured, on me, poured out on me the best she had the promise of a new life. 
All this time, he has been looking at the woman and speaking to Simon. But now for the first time, he speaks to her. Now for a moment, it's as if it's just the two of them in the room and nobody else in the world. And he looks at her and she looks at him and he says to her this, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. And her heart just swells with joy. She was going to be Jesus' champion and now he's hers. And then he has one more act of servanthood. How you say farewell was very important in ancient cultures. It still is today, really. Jesus knows for sure Simon the host is not going to do that for this woman. And so Jesus does. And he says to her, go in peace. Shalom. End of story. You have to understand when Jesus told that parable about the, the two debtors, he was not saying to Simon, hey, Simon, you're the righteous man. You've hardly sinned at all. You don't need much grace. Jesus knew a great sin was defiling the room, but it's not the sin that Simon thought it was. It's the sin of lips that will not kiss, of knees that will not kneel, of eyes that will not weep, a heart that will not break and hands that will not serve. You see, the greatest command is the command to love. And that's why we're doing this series about the verb, the action word love. And the greatest sin is the refusal to obey the greatest command. Simon, don't you see? You have the biggest debt of all. If only Simon could see it. If only Simon would fall on the ground beside the sinful woman and feel pain over his sin as she did over hers and be overwhelmed that Jesus loved him anyway in the midst of his hard-heartedness. If only Simon's tears would begin to flow and mingle with hers and they could wash the feet of Jesus together. You see, she needed grace for a heart that was broken. Simon needed grace for a heart that was hard. And I want to tell you something. A hard heart needs even more grace than a broken one. And whether you're here with a broken heart, whether you've been beaten down or you feel wounded, or whether you've had a hard heart and there's something inside you that is just rigid towards another person, and you're having difficulty extending grace to somebody else. Jesus is still in the business of healing hearts. And he'll do that for you so that you can love. And all you have to do is ask. Jesus is teaching his disciples about this, about the power of loving servanthood through his whole life, right to the very end. I wonder if his disciples thought about that woman in the story on their last night with Jesus. They were gathered in a room and Jesus knew that he was going to die the next day. One more time, there's a problem around foot washing. The disciples have this little quarrel. Whose job is it to wash feet? Didn't anybody get a foot washer? Do I have to do everything around here? People have a tendency to think this way. 
As a matter of historical record, there is no evidence of a rabbi ever washing the feet of his disciples, except this one. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, put a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with a towel. Whose job is it? Jesus says, it's mine. It's my job. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You see, love serves. And so that begs the question, who are you going to serve? We have a tremendous opportunity coming up called Butler Mission Week. And our church has a mission to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And beginning July 14th, we'll be loving our neighbors in our community through BMW. This is a great opportunity for you to practice servanthood. Jesus knew how to break down the stereotypes about servanthood. The, pro, the most prominent one in his day probably was leaders don't serve. The great don't serve. Jesus knew the practice of servanthood is maybe the most important for people who are in positions of power because our egos are so vulnerable to pride. And I just want to say as a church, we want to be known for extraordinary servanthood. For five days, there are going to be dozens of opportunities to serve organizations and ministries right here in El Dorado and throughout Butler County, painting and cleaning and packing meals. We'll extend intentional acts of kindness to, uh, by delivering cookies to businesses and to the service industries, thanking them for making our community a great place to live. And then we'll collect dozens of prayer requests and lift them up to God. And the week will end with a huge party on the front lawn of Susan B. Allen Hospital, and there will be free food and music and games. You know, throughout Butler Mission Week, there's a good chance that we're going to encounter poverty and sickness and brokenness and homelessness and evidence of a laundry list of really bad decisions. And the worst thing we could do as the church, as followers of Jesus, is to look at people the way that Simon greeted the woman in the story with a hard heart and a critical eye. Our role is to feel what God feels and to see the kinds of things that God sees when he looks at us. But we can't do it on our own. We need help. So as we go from one encounter to another, ask God this question. God, would you help me see what you see when you look at your people? And then act on it. And then that way, a little bit of his kingdom will come from up there, down here, and move through you and flow to them. If you've been around our church for a while and you're a follower of Jesus, but you're still kind of sitting in the bleachers and spectating, get in the game. Be a servant, not just a spectator. So sometime today, Take 10 minutes to register for Butler Mission Week at our website, 
hopecovenant.church, or you can text the number that is up here, text BMW to our church text line, and let us know when you're able to serve, even if it's just for one shift on one day. And then join us as we live out the beloved part of our vision. And let's ask Jesus to help us love the way that he loves. Love serves. And let's aim for greatness, gang. And the next week, come back as we will be looking at another thing that love does. Love sends. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is no way to fully measure the depth and the breadth of your love for us. And there's no way for us to fully thank you for what you've done and what you're doing in our lives. And our prayer today is that we can express a small part of our gratitude by doing what you've instructed, by serving the people around us, in our neighborhoods, in our community. You've called us to be the salt of the earth so others can taste your love and your goodness. Help us to remember that we are your light in this community and in this world. As we inch closer and closer to Butler Mission Week, I pray that our eyes are opened and our hearts are broken to the things that you see and the things that break your heart. And I ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. We're at this point in our morning where we have the opportunity to celebrate communion. A long time ago, there was a supper feast that took place near a courtyard. And the custom of that day did not welcome sinners. And Jesus changed all that for a woman. Right there in her life, she is loved by God. And it's not too late, not even for her. She approached the table with all sorts of emotions inside of her. Fear, love, anger, and pain. And she experienced a kind of grace that she's never known before. And Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has made you whole. Jesus is still present at the table and he's welcoming you today. Maybe your heart is broken over a relationship. Maybe over sickness or over death. Maybe your heart is hard and there's someone you need to love. Maybe somebody that you need to forgive. Maybe that somebody is yourself. And that's what this supper is for. We serve an open table at Hope Covenant Church which means that if you want to participate in this holy meal, you don't need to be a member of this church or any church to participate. You are welcome to receive. And God's grace is available to you today. As Shelly mentioned earlier, uh, we have four stations uh, for communion. Uh, one here, one over here, one there in the corner, and then one in the back. And as you come forward, please remember to drop your Connect card and your offering in the baskets that are provided on the stools. 
and receive the grace and love of Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Lord and Father of all humanity, we approach this feast of remembrance in humility, gratitude, and anticipation. We are humbled by the consciousness of our shortcomings and the love which prompted the suffering of our Lord as the atonement of our sins. We are grateful for all that is symbolized in this communion of the Lord's Supper. We are grateful for his sacrifice on our behalf and the assurance of forgiveness of sins of which this communion celebration is a reminder. We anticipate a renewal of faith, courage, love, and devotion as we share in this experience today. Bless each of us as we participate in this feast of remembrance. And now we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body that is broken for you. Every time you do this, remember me. And after supper, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, take and drink. This is my blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are helping with communion to come forward. table is open. Come and receive. <laughs> 